Well, good morning to you this morning. It's good to be here. I'm very excited about standing before you this morning. But in all honesty, I have to let you know that I'm immediately reminded of the words of my brother Brian Irby from last Sunday. I believe the word he used was terrified, I remember. I've come before you already with the Lord's Supper. So I've had yet another opportunity to examine my own heart and to allow the Word of God, the Spirit of God, cause me to look deep within. And you're only confronted with your greatest need once again, right? That's what happens. I'm mindful of that. And then I stand up here and James's words hit me. You know, be not many teachers because you have a greater judgment, the Word of God. And we're all teachers of God's Word to some degree. If we've come to Him, the only way you can come, and that's through faith and repentance, wholly dependent upon His Word, wholly dependent upon His ability and His alone to transform your heart and to change you from what you used to be to what you are now by His grace. So we give all honor and glory to him. It is awesome, as I shared with my brother here just a moment ago. I'm reminded of the priests, how they would go in, you know, and when they would go into the Holy of Holies, they say that they would tie a rope to their foot so that if they were overcome by the power of God while they were in there, that their, their fellow priests, suppose, could pull them out, you know, and get them out of there. So, uh, we have any rope? So, it's an eye opener. It really is. But we get to look this morning at a topic that's well within the guidelines of our main theme, which is convictions of a faithful church. Convictions of a faithful church. Brian spoke last week about God's Word and the power of His Word. It was wonderful. Today, I've been asked to talk about citizenship and was given a little latitude to kind of bend that and mold that however uh, the Lord laid it on my heart. So what I want to focus on today is our two citizenships. We have a double citizenship as believers. So citizenship, to be sure, is first and foremost about relationship. We might not even think of it that way, but indeed it is. It's about relationship. It's about relationship with others. It's about relationship, of course, with the government and so forth. And we'll talk about that at some length. It involves rights and privileges granted to a person by a country, by a state, by a city, And as believers, we're blessed to have this dual citizenship. Great blessing comes out of both. This, of course, is not uncommon to have a dual citizenship. Not uncommon at all. You even see it in the secular sense or in the earthly sense with our earthly citizenships. Believers have this secular or earthly citizenship just like everybody else. At least we do right now. And then we have this spiritual or heavenly citizenship. So that's our status right now if you are a believer. The Bible speaks quite a bit about both these citizenships. So we're going to do what we can this morning in our limited time to give attention to them. We'll see ultimately that one is obviously infinitely, eternally more important than the other. But they're intrinsically uh, bonded together. You, You can't separate them. 
You can't do that. So it's right that we talk about them, I think, this morning together. And I think they might challenge us a bit as we look at what the Word of God has to say. And you can be turning to Romans 13. We'll begin with the first verse there in just a little bit. So we're going to look at these two citizenships. One temporal. It will expire on the day that you expire. And then you have your heavenly citizenship. And I want to be as timely as I can and have as much time at the end here to talk about that heavenly citizenship. To be sure, both of these have tremendous impact on our joy, tremendous impact on our peace in this life. Both come with great responsibility. Both of them come with great accountability. We will give an account because we respond, you know, the way that we live, as Paul talks about, our walk in life will reflect our attitude, what we believe about the responsibilities that God has put on us in regard to these two citizenships. Both of them reflect God's grace and God's mercy, because indeed they are both a gift to man. This is God's doing. So therefore, we need to give as much attention and as much time as we can to try and understand these two citizenships. We'll be looking at Paul's words here. You know, I jumped into this and I thought, wow, that's a great topic that I've been assigned, okay? I know a little bit about this, you know. And then I start reading and everything. Then I'm literally overwhelmed at what's in the Word of God about these things. Especially when you go back and you, and you pull it all together. Paul's writing, you know, here in Romans, somewhere around AD 56. If you're just a brief bit about the book of Romans, if you go, if you go back to chapter one, just to give you an idea of how Paul has moved forward, you know, he goes back and he defines righteousness, what that is. He talks about justification. He, he talks about true righteousness and what sanctification is. We know we go to the book of Romans to look at the great doctrines of salvation. We do that. We see that very, very clearly. He talks about this sanctification, Israel's restoration. He's moving forward. He goes up through chapter 11. And then it's about relationships. It's about relationships. Relationships toward God. Relationships amongst believers. He talks about our society and, of course, the the government over our society, over our various cultures that we have to live in. So this is important. It's in The Word of God, it gives us very clear direction about how we ought to be thinking. Now, I'll admit right now, working in law enforcement for the better part of 40 years, and I can really get in the weeds with some of this stuff, okay? So I've asked God to give me discipline this morning. I'm serious. Uh, This can't be, uh, you know, what it's about to me, okay? It's about God's word this morning. And I'll make an application where I trust it's appropriate. But we'll see that it's all about perspective. How do you perceive your responsibilities amidst what God has laid out? And we'll see clearly here in a minute as we begin with verse 1. How do you see that? How do you warm up to that? Is it a part of what guides you in your affairs and your relationships one with another? Sometimes I think we just have a tendency maybe just to focus upon our church relationships and people in the body of Christ. 
We have to be focused on those who are outside and literally here on the government and the responsibility that we have, literally, as it will say in just a moment, to line up, to get in line, to be where you're supposed to be, and beyond that, to think rightly about it. Because if you're not thinking rightly about it, what happens? It creates stress. You wind up constantly doing something, yielding to something. The scripture will say you're subjecting yourself to something that you really don't believe, that you're really not bought into. That causes a lot of stress. So obviously, when we get our thinking right about this or any other related matter, it really doesn't matter. When we get our thinking right in that it's lining up with the word of God, even when it's trying, even when it's difficult, you'll see the stress just kind of leaving you. It's like somebody pulled a plug and it's kind of running out of your heels. Well, another thing about this issue of perspective, I normally don't do this, but I think it's appropriate today. I was reminded of a little story that my former chief of police at Cobb told me. His name was Lee New. I hope he's doing well this morning. He told me this story because we were talking about instructing and talking specifically about uh, this, this idea of perspective, personal perspective, what we understand based upon our knowledge, our experience, and then for the believer, of course, God's word. What, wor- what God's word has to say, how it comes to bear on any particular issue. And he told me this little story to make a point about this issue of perspective. He said, it seems that there was this police officer who had just been, he's fed up with it. He's tired of it. And certainly nowadays with all of the confusion that's going on and the false narratives that are out there, we've lost a lot of police officers in this day. That's a current event. So he says, I'm done. I'm throwing it down. I'm taking everything off. I'm going down to the local monastery and I'm going to join. I'm just making a change. So he goes down They take everything he has. They give him a robe and some sandals and a little rope belt. And there he is. And the head monk says, look, don't say another word. Don't open your mouth. But after one year, you can say two words after one year. So he's all for that. Oh, how hard could it be? So he goes for the first year. And then the head monk comes in and says, okay, year's up. What you got to say? He said, "Uh, food bad. He said, okay, food bad. Go another year. At the end of the year, what have you got to say? He says, bed hard, bed hard, bed hard, okay. The third year rolls around. And he says, what have you got to say today? Two words. He says, I quit. (laughs) The head monk said, well, you might as well quit. You had not done anything but complain ever since you've been here. (laughs) So it's a matter of perspective. And is your perspective, we could call it your foundation, whatever. We could talk about in these circles, we talk about our mind being informed. How much have you taken in about the truth of God's word about any particular issue? And the issue this morning as we begin is in Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Did y'all enjoy that? Well, good. I hope you have a nice day. I hope you enjoy July the 4th. You can't say it any clearer than that. Did Paul mean something else? No. He meant that right there. He goes on, he says, For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. He uses this word. It's a key word for these first five verses here. 
And it literally means, this word subjection, it means to line up, to, to get in line, to subordinate yourself. That's what you need to do. Isn't that hard to do? Do you find that hard to do when the Word of God asks you to do something that might, quite frankly, just kind of run cross-grain with what you truly want to do? Paul tells us not once but twice, even in Romans and later in Galatians, that the just live by faith. And there are a number of times in God's Word that you'll come to situations where you just need to do what it says. We want to understand. We want to be rightly motivated. But it's interesting here, he doesn't leave any allowances here. This is very plain, very clear. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. And he doesn't qualify that in any way, this governing authority. He doesn't say just the governing authorities that are kind of on line with your political agenda or whatever, or that are spending money the way that you think they ought to be spending the money. He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't look at the the character necessarily of those who are in charge and whether or not they are worthy, worthy of our obedience regarding what God has said here. Peter weighs in on this, of course, in 1 Peter, second chapter, beginning with verse 13. He begins by saying, submit, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. Keep that in mind for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors is sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. And then he goes on for for such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Once again. He begins by saying, line up. And when he's talking about for the Lord's sake, he's talking about honoring God. Because we have an understanding that this is God's idea. This is part of God's plan. This is his word on this issue. And Peter understood that. The result, one positive result, is that it will serve to silence the ignorance of foolish men. It's talking about those who are standing in the wings, those who are standing uh, behind us and so forth, who are listening to our words, looking at our life, our example, and they're looking for an opportunity to criticize. And this allows us to avoid that, to avoid this undue criticism. And if there is criticism, it should be undue, unjust criticism. Paul again with Titus, Titus 3, 1 and 2, remind them to be subject, subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable and gentle, showing every consideration for all men. We can read that and say, wouldn't it be a wonderful world if people would just take that verse right there to heart. How much difficulty could we avoid? Daniel reminds us in chapter 2, verse 21, he's talking to Nebuchadnezzar. It is he, Daniel says, who changes the times, talking about God. He changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and he establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is the work of God. It is the work of a sovereign God. When people come in to power, we like to think that we did the work and that we appointed them. But he says there is no authority. There's none of this that happens apart 
from God. And the question once again, what is our perspective on the matter? Do we truly believe that? Because if we do, it'll take a lot of the pressure off and we'll be able to do and operate as we should as Christians in a world that's quite difficult and apparently is growing even more difficult as we try to yield to what our government wants us to do. We don't want to leave out the Lord Jesus. I think about him even before Pilate, and you will recall when he's there, Pilate's asking him questions. Are you a king? So on and so forth. They have this discussion. He says, don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I can do to you? Don't you know that I have the power? Pontius Pilate says, Jesus says, what? You would have no authority over me, none, unless it had been given you from above. None. He says, for this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. A different, different message for a different time. The point here is Jesus points it out. Can you imagine how he must have melted when the truth of those words hit him? Was there still enough in Pontius Pilate there to be moved and touched perhaps by the word of God? I think there was because of the power of God's word. It's his word that we must yield to. Verse 2. Verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Condemnation. It's talking about punishment. God is for the punishment of evildoers, it says. And I just, I didn't want to camp too long here. But once again, we need to understand that it is, it is he who does this. Psalm 34, 15, and 16, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry, the righteous. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Maybe easy for us sometimes to kind of lose track of how God deals with disobedience, how he deals with evil. And in spite of what his sovereign plan is allowing right now in our lives, in the life of our nation or whatever, listen, he's going to have the victory over this. He's going to deal with it. People will give an account. We go back in history and we see, you know, (laughs) City-states, countries have fallen. Regimes have fallen because it's God who puts them in and it's God who takes them out. That's not the, that's not the philosophy of some simpleton. It's reflective of what the Word of God says, and he will deal with evil. He will do that. So secondly, we make the point that God has ordained government or governmental authority for our good. This is what God has done. He's had his people in mind. Verse 3 says, For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. Listen, in general, basically, what can the government do for us? Well, it's there to serve this authority that's been granted to protect life, to protect property, to serve, to instill, to either to uh, uh, restore uh, an element of peace 
in society, or primarily, as we like to say, it's there as part, in part to restrain evil. Can you imagine what it would be like if there were no laws? If there were no people there to enforce those laws? And that's why I refuse to talk on any level about defunding the police. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Not God's will. Not his will. So that's, that's kind of crazy, if you ask me. God's got it in order here. He's determined that it be a certain way. These rulers, regardless of who they are, their own personal deficiencies, he's there. He's ordained the position. He's in charge of it. He raises up one and, and takes down another. He gives wisdom. He still changes hearts. So our duty is to what? We'll see it more clearly later. Pray. Pray for them. Pray for them. And still here, the key word is subjection. To be in subjection. To accept what God has established regarding governmental authority. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. First of all, then he says, I urge the entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. That would be sweet. That would be nice. You know, as we say police officers, you know what the real title is? You know what Georgia law says? We're peace officers. Peace officers. To restore the peace, to maintain the peace, to protect life and property. As you often see on the side of a police car, serve and protect. That's what it's all about. How important is it, not just as citizens, but for those officers, men and women who are involved, to see themselves in their role. In a role that God has ordained, there will be accountability. When that kind of power is given, when that kind of authority is given, there is a greater responsibility. And we need to be mindful of that. What about verse 4 here? Paul has told us, proceeding here, he says, you know, when you think about government authority, it it needs to be uh, not a process, when you think about the men and women in authority, it's not a process devoid of intimacy. These are people. They need to be prayed for, as we said. They need compassion sometimes. They need the truth given to them in love. We might even think in terms of their need sometimes, not whether or not they deserve it, because we honor God when we do what he says. And you see examples of that throughout the word of God. Even Paul here, and you go back and look when he's, you know, he's before the council. He's before uh, um, Felix. Uh, before Festus, then Agrippa, and then, uh, then in Rome, before the Caesar. Uh, he's, he's respectful. Most excellent Agrippa. Most excellent Felix, whatever. He goes out of his way because he knows that's God's word, God's will for him to be that way, and to demonstrate that kind of concern. Well, verse 4, and I'm moving as fast as I can here, and I'm doing good. For it is a minister, for, for, I'm going to read it like, like it is in, in my Bible here, in the NASB. Listen, it says, For it is, it is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the word, or, or rather the sword, 
for nothing, for, for it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. And I leave it in there. Now, if you go to ESV or to the New King James Version, it's going to change that word it to he. And that's right, okay? But the emphasis is, the emphasis here is on what God has set up. How he has determined this issue regarding governmental authority. And the men and women who make it work, whether they're police officers or whatever, whatever their position is, uh, judges, uh, even people serving on a jury in that, in that particular position, we're doing and we're participating in a system that God has established even that word there, minister, is the word, diakonos, okay, servant, that's what it is. Listen, it changes everything when we see ourselves rightly according to the word of God. And the only other word I'll point out here, he uses this word avenger when he says he's a minister of God in the latter part of the verse here. An avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. What does God tell us about Vengeance, even Paul in Romans 12 here. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. Isn't it comfort to know? You just do what you're supposed to do. Just do what the word of God calls you to do regarding your attitude toward the government. And where there are times when people are mistreated and so forth, just let it run its course. Let it run its course. You know, at my level in, in dealing with complaints, and thank God I don't do that anymore in my current assignment. I'm just a trainer right now in a nice retirement position. But back in the day uh, when uh, I was the commander of internal affairs for Cobb County, you see this all the time. People want their pound of flesh. That's what they want. They just need to let the system work. And it will work with rare exception. It will work. I've seen it happen. Time and time again. But let God do his work. Let him do his work. Now, Paul talks, and we have his personal example here. Look at Acts 25.11 if you want to turn over there. To just touch briefly here on this issue about, in this case, capital punishment. Paul says, he's before Festus. He's left Felix, he's before Festus, when he's given an account, having been taken into custody. And part of his dialogue there, he says, If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, what does he say? I refuse not to die. But if none of these things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. So Paul had a clear understanding of what his Roman citizenship involved. He had a clear understanding of that. He understood how it could be of benefit to him. He also knew that from the Old Testament that there were no less than 36 offenses in the Old Testament for which capital punishment would be given, and I'm not going to go into all the verses regarding capital punishment, but I will give them to you if you want to write real quick. Genesis 9-6, of course. Exodus 21-12. 
Leviticus 24, beginning with verse 17 there, and just read through 22, or Numbers 35, 30 through 31. And you know, as I was studying this and looking just a little more intently at this issue of capital punishment, uh, I found this, stumbled on this verse from Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11, where we see, you know, God's got it together here because he says, and I'm not going to go back and turn to the verse, I'll just kind of paraphrase it for you, but basically he's saying, look, uh, punishment needs to be carried out swiftly. It needs to be carried out swiftly. And he goes on to say, if you don't carry it out swiftly, Ecclesiastes 8, 11, then you're just making the problem worse. You're just making people feel like they can do what they want. The Bible speaks on that. That got my attention. Sometimes we think these things are our idea. It's God's wisdom. Listen, point number three, that believers, the believer's motivation is to please God through obedience. To please God through obedience. So in verse five, he says, therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, once again lined up, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. And here, just another word about realizing that our, our strength here as believers in moving forward, accepting this, being obedient, is because we realize again our obligation is to God. Paul, in, in verses 1 through 5 here, this is what he's talking about each time. He's talking about this attitude of subjection. He just keeps pounding on it here. And the the context here, I understand from my study, deals with a willing obedience. Where does that come from? It doesn't necessarily come from confidence in the government, does it? It comes from the fact that this is what God has provided for us by way of instruction. We even mentioned it back under verse 1 there when I was talking from 1 Peter 2.13, where he says what you do here, you do for the Lord's sake. It's a matter of obedience It's about recognizing and accepting authority. This is about a clear conscience before God. It's all his idea. It's all his idea. Fourthly, we're to demonstrate support and respect. Support and respect for authority by our actions and our words. Now, basically, this translates in to giving money, or as we'll see in a moment, paying our taxes, and giving honor. Now, not some kind of false honor, not not some type of uh, recognition from us or yielding from us, which just kind of, you know, going through the motions because this is what's expected of me regarding how I uh, respond to governmental authority. No, it speaks and it demands a change of heart, a way of thinking that's right And uh, goes right alongside, it's parallel with what God requires. Paul just keeps beating on this. And he's right. Because again, as I say, if you don't get this part right, okay, if you just try to work through it up here and it begins rubbing you the wrong way, even because of your personal needs or your emotions, your particular situation at the time, then you'll fail. You'll, you'll soon begin to realize that I'm doing things for the wrong reason again. I'm not moving forward with the right attitude. I'm not yielding based upon the authority of God's word. I'm doing what I want to do as it suits me. And that won't work. So those first five verses are talking about subjection. Subjection to God 
ordained authority. And then with this verse, he moves these last two verses, 6 and 7. He's going to talk about these issues of paying taxes and giving honor where honor is due. Because he says in verse 6, For because of this, because of this, all that he's put forth here, these first five verses, you also pay taxes for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. This is what God, this is the way he's set it up. And there are always advantages to the people. With rare exception, God works his sovereignty. He works his miracle of providing for people, of demonstrating graciousness toward all people. We understand what common grace is. He does this in part through these ruling authorities. So he says, because of this, you pay taxes for rulers or servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing, render all what is due them, tax to whom tax, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And you're to do it with the right attitude. I would direct you to Daniel chapter 1 and chapter 6 regarding Daniel's personal involvement with this here. As he's told to eat things, he's not supposed to eat, okay? Or as he's told not to pray at a certain time during the day, or to pray to the wrong thing, or his cohorts, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Chapters 1 and 3, they were there regarding this food issue, too. And then they were asked to bow to this image, and they wouldn't do it. Go and read and look at their words, how respectful their words were. But how solid they were when they said, we're not going to do that. You'll recall. We're not going to bow down. It's wrong. We're not going to do it. What will happen will happen. Our God can deliver us. But if he don't, we're still not going to do it. And there's no sense that they said it with some attitude. They were respectful. Daniel was respectful over the food issue. Working it out. Being amiable, if you will. Amicable, whatever. So that they could reach an agreement. And you recall the agreement. Just let, us, just let us eat what we usually eat. And just see how we look after that. He didn't want to get the guy in trouble that was after him. And it worked out. It worked out. And I wanted to spend as much time as I could here in, in Matthew regarding Jesus' example. I'm going to do the best I can here. But be sure taxes are a big deal with most citizens. The major emphasis in our American revolution... What was it? What was it? Taxes. Remember the Boston Tea Party? That wasn't a social event. The Boston Tea Party, young people, y'all know what that is? I understand history suffering nowadays. They got on there. What was the cry during those days? No taxation without representation. Remember that? They teach you that nowadays? Well, it's a big deal. It was a big deal, and it's still a big deal. There are no issues of fairness here. Once again, in these verses, pay the taxes. No qualifications are given. None whatsoever. Jesus and his disciples paid their taxes. Matthew chapter 17, verse 24, says that when they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From, <clears throat> from their sons or from strangers? And Peter said, well, from strangers, not their own family. 
Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt, right? Yeah. However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish. What comes up and when you open the mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to, to them for me and for you. And he's talking here about this temple tax that every male in Israel, 20 years old, was obligated to pay. It was a half shekel tax, which is roughly two days' wage. It's interesting when Jesus responds here and he gives this question to Peter, he kind of couches it in the earthly sense because he refers to the kings of the earth. And what Jesus is talking about, you pay me, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Word made flesh, the Messiah, pay taxes to my house. <laughs> To my house? Well, you don't even do that, he's saying, you know, in, in the earthly situation. You don't do that. Peter answered it rightly. But what did he do? He went and he said, you pay it. You pay it lest they be offended, lest we give offense. And that's saying a lot. You think, well, that was a religious thing. Yeah, really. You want to take a look at the temple during that day, what was going on? Then in my Sunday school class, we're in the 23rd chapter of Matthew right now. It's rough. It's rough. Seven woes, right, class? A corrupt system. But he didn't say, no, I'm going to hold back. I'm not going to pay it. I don't know where the money's going. Or maybe I do know where the money's going. I can't support that. Paid it. And the message here is pay your taxes. Now, this was a tax that they, not a Roman tax, but the Romans did allow it. Yeah, And then Jesus clears it up, Matthew 22, when they tried to catch him. Again, he's there in the temple, his last sermon. He's within 48 hours of the cross. They're, they're trying to trick him up. And the first thing they go to is this issue of taxes. They're going to ask him three questions. They start with taxes. And these Pharisees don't even go themselves. They just send some of their disciples, I guess because Jesus would know is a disingenuous question. And they ask him, hey, are we supposed to pay taxes to Caesar? He says, give me a coin. Uh, whose picture's on it? Caesar's. Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and unto God the things which are God's. And he's standing there looking at that denarius, that silver coin. Only the emperor could have silver and gold coins minted. That was probably Tiberius on that coin. A picture of Tiberius, his profile, his face, and then a picture of him on the back, I understand, where he's sitting on his kingly robe. And, you know, he declared to be God. God in flesh. And that's the coin you had to use to pay. Jesus said, I'm not, he didn't say, I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm not, uh-uh. That doesn't represent me. No, we pay our taxes. We pay our taxes. We have these struggles. We're to be submissive and we're to pay our taxes. That's what comes out of this. That's the two main messages that come out. But it begs the question, so where do we draw the line? Is there ever a time when we draw the line when we say, can't do it, not going to do it? Well, we know what Peter and John did, don't we? When they were drugged before the council, when they were told not to speak or to teach in the name of Jesus, and whether it's right, he said, in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to men, you're the judge, for we cannot but speak about that which we've both seen and heard. They drug him up there again later. That was Acts 4, 19 and 20. Get over there to Acts 5, 27. Here they go again. They're obedient to God. They're taken into custody. 
It says, when they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in his name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. If you're doing something that God has told you to do, you're to keep doing it. And you're not to be stopped from doing what God has told you to do. That's the exception. That's the exception. Paul would rely on his citizenship more than once, his Roman citizenship. They were trying to beat him to death. He would say there in Acts 22, 25, you're going to examine me by scourging? You shouldn't do that. I'm a Roman citizen. Is it right to bind, even bind a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? He knew that his citizenship could provide him some protections. He honored it. He had no choice. He had no concept, I don't believe, he had no concept of the the country, uh, the political uh, environment that we live in today. No. No, it it was sovereign. It was a dictatorship. It was cruel. It was oppressive. He served in a system that eventually took his life. But he knew from a spiritual standpoint that nothing could happen until God allowed it. To happen. Nothing. So that's the earthly citizenship. Can I have a few extra moments just to talk about our heavenly citizenship? Our heavenly citizenship. Philippians 3.20 is very plain. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. By the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful for that today. 1 Peter 2.9 tells us that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Oh, that's what we ought to be thinking about. The goodness of God. His graciousness to us. All this that He has provided. Ephesians 1 tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Listen, we need to focus Upon our true, our eternal, our eternal citizenship. It's medicine for the soul. Medicine for the soul. And lastly here, John 14. My Father's house are many mansions, many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Where I am, there you may be also. It's God's plan. He wants to be with us. He's provided a place for us. And the reality of that starts when we are born again. You don't have to wait for it. We're in the kingdom of God. We're in the kingdom of heaven if we've come alive spiritually. And it is an eternal, an eternal relationship. An eternal citizenship. This is what we have. Sixthly, we have a present and unending access to our King. For the sake of time, I've got four here. I'm just going to give you one. He says, literally. 
in Hebrews, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And I want to tell you, I have found that to be absolutely true in my life. Have you found it to be true? He will not ever. He can't. And I love that, the way they describe it there in the Greek. No way, not, no how, not never, all these negatives. But it means it just can't happen. He's not going to leave you. The government may fail you. All the other institutions may fail you. Particularly those institutions that are for here right now are earthly institutions. God will never fail. Christ has promised to be there. And we are citizens there in that heavenly state. Last point. We have the surety of faithful life. The surety, I'm sorry, not faithful, of a fruitful life. That's what we have. You know, he told Peter in Matthew 16, there in verse 19, Peter answered rightly, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He goes on and he says, you know, Peter, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. That's what I'm going to give you. Every believer has access to the keys to the kingdom, which is what? The gospel of Jesus Christ. The work that we can do because we have that gospel applied to us. We can take that gospel and I guarantee you, your life, your life under Christ as a citizen of heaven will be fruitful. You have the keys to the kingdom. You have what truly changes a person's heart and mind. And not only that, not only for now, but for all eternity, if they experience God's grace through faith and repentance. This is what He has for us. And He goes on, I talk about His authority, I talk about His taking care of our weaknesses. He's there for us when we're tempted. He gives us confidence. Paul said in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who keeps on pouring His power into me, the way I understand it. We don't have an excuse. We are equipped. We have the promises of God as a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. We are His sheep. We hear His voice. He speaks to us and He reminds us that we belong to Him. So just one word in closing about freedom. We talked about dual citizenships. And then quite simply, we talk about freedom. Romans 8, 2 says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free. Paul again in Galatians 5, Stand fast therefore in the liberty, liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. That's what God's Word says. We have this tremendous freedom in Christ. I want to share with you a quote from Charles Spurgeon. So simple but yet so profound. He says, all men are slaves. Every man is a slave. He says, you are either a slave to Jesus Christ or you are a slave to the world. That about sums it up, doesn't it? I don't see any room. I don't see any middle ground in there at all based upon what I know about Scripture. You're a slave to Christ, or you're a slave to the world. If you're a slave to the world today, you are a slave to sin. Sin dominates your life. You may argue that it's not your desire, you'd like to do better, but you haven't been to that place where you've examined your heart 
before God, before the power of His Word coming down on you, before the power of the Holy Spirit, which is convicting you of your thoughts, your actions, your neglects in this life that don't line up with what God requires. You refuse to believe that you need a Savior. Are you here this morning? Are these words touching you in any way? Well, you have an opportunity. You have an opportunity this morning. Examine your heart. Turn to Christ. Desire heavenly citizenship above all else. God will hear that prayer. I end with 2 Timothy 4.18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank You for the goodness of Your grace. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. Thank you, Lord, that you speak clearly on so many issues, even those issues that give us guidance and direction in this life. When so many times our heart and our emotions, our way of thinking tells us to go a different direction, Lord, we can go back to your solid word. Lord, we thank you for that today. We are people of the word. Lord, fill us with that word. Help us to hear it. Help us to obey it, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.